Welcome to this episode of Temple Beth Am's Are You Coming Back? Personal, candid conversations with Jewish thought leaders across the country on the future of Jewish practice. Hosted by Rabbi Cantor Hilary Chorney. Jody Berman Kostanovich is hysterical. You'll know that in a few minutes if you keep listening, and I hope you do. I met her as a part of our Shalom Hartman Institute of North America cohort earlier this year. Jody's the Associate Executive Director of Wilshire Boulevard Temple, and she's a coach and a trainer and a consultant for Berman Leadership Strategies when she's not busy braiding hala or commenting on Oscar nominations. Jody and I sat down to talk about what this past year has been for her and her big Belarusian family. Stay tuned as she answers the question, are you coming back? Maybe we'll start by you taking me back to 2019, which feels like forever ago. We're sitting here on Inauguration Day. There's like a brand new president and vice president now as of our sitting here. Um, so take me way back. And take me to, I don't know, Shabbat, a holiday. Um, what was life like for you and your family before the pandemic descended on you? Yeah. You know, um, we're pretty active Jews around these parts uh, in my household. You know, we we build the sukkah. We do, all, we do all the holidays. I'm already, it's January. I'm already Passover cleaning. We go, we start right after the first weekend of the new year. We start cleaning out rooms. And that has been a real ritual for us. And Shabbat looks so different because every Friday night, for as long as I've been with my husband, we go, we used to go to my in-laws for Shabbat dinner every Friday night. And it was a very different kind of Shabbat dinner for me because I was raised in a very traditional household, um, moderate, like conservative traditional. And, um, and they come from Belarus. So their, um, their experience of Shabbat was slightly different, still Jewish. I mean, that's one of the things I love about anywhere I go in the world is like, you can find the Jew, you can find the Judaism. I mean, it moves me to tears sometimes. Um, and so every Friday night off, we went to my in-laws and I haven't cooked, I hadn't cooked a Shabbat dinner in, Years. I mean, except for the occasional let's have friends over for Shabbat or let's go to some friends for Shabbat. It was weekly. I never really saw my parents on Friday nights or my brother on Friday nights. And um, and then, you know, we really but we really all gathered all 15, 16 of us for every Rosh Hashanah dinner, Passover. And we have this amazing division of labor in that my my Belarusian in-laws host all the American holidays, like July 4th, Thanksgiving, uh, mm-hmm. Memorial Day, Labor Day, like all the barbecue kinds of holidays. And then our family, the Bermans, the Berman side, we do all the Jewish holidays. And so it's like this beautiful division of labor between two sets of immigrant families who really love celebrating all these holidays with family. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's so different. And um, what is it? What does Friday night at their house look like? Oh, well, so first of all, it's us and our three kids when our when we we now have college kids. So some of our kids are occasionally missing. Um, My husband's sister and her husband and her two kids and my in-laws. And then, you know, whichever of the shtetl that moved from Belarus, because it's like 30 of their family members, occasionally would also join us. Or there'd be family in from Russia or family in from Canada or wherever. It's a very like festive household. And, you know, always toast number one, toast number two, toast number three is always God bless America. So, uh, you know, I'm not a shots person, but like shots, every Friday night and uh vodka certainly vodka absolutely vodka and also 700 dishes like my mother-in-law first of all she makes the best chopped liver in America and beyond and my father-in-law makes the best smoked fish of anyone you've ever met I want them to open a store called smoked and chopped um 
And they, I mean, really, there'll be like 700 appetizers and four main courses and six side. Like my mother-in-law for 10 people cooks for 300. So we're always leaving with like, you know, packages of Ziplocs (laughs) (laughs) every week. (laughs) <laughs> enough to get you to the next Friday night. That's the exactly whole. Right. Exactly. Whole... What, enough for Russian potato salad to feed an army. Yeah. Really. Russian potato yeah. salad. Russian potato salad. It's, it, it's something that um, everyone should experience once. Yeah. But uh, I'm not, a, I'm not a big fan of mayonnaise and mayonnaise is a Russian staple. So uh, there are a lot, like anything you can envision with mayonnaise, it's in the Shabbat dinner. Yes. Yeah. 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 So what, what was the first thing that you can remember now that we're coming up? It's hard to believe that it's almost a year. Um, Now you're somebody who works in the office of the, an executive director. So I know you, I know you know what I mean when I say it's almost Purim season. It is Purim planning and ordering season. Like we're basically ordering the goodies. So it's a year from when we were doing this. For sure. Uh, and my office, by the way, looks like a, a time capsule from last forum uh, still. What's the first thing that you remember kind of falling apart and freezing? What's the first memory that you have of um, life falling yeah. apart? Well, I'll, I, it's so vivid to me. It's so vivid to me. Because by the way, Purim was the very last thing we did when we could gather. Yeah. And um, it's very vivid to me because, as I mentioned, I take the Passover thing very seriously. We clean for three to four months, depending. Um, We look through and, you know, obviously we take it to an extreme. The kitchen is what you're cleaning the chametz. For all of the people who are going to comment on this podcast, like she doesn't understand what Passover cleaning is. I do. But I also see it as this amazing opportunity to look at every piece of clothing, look at every book, see, you know, what uh, what what chazerai you have in your house that you can get rid of, right? So I take all of that very seriously and Passover dishes, Passover pots and pans, Passover blender, Passover immersion. Like, you know, I have built, I have built the Passover uh, tools quite, quite uh, seriously. And last year I talked to my mom on the phone, who, by the way, is the one who started this kind of, cleaning tradition. Yeah. He said, I can't do it. I didn't change dishes for the first time in my adult life. I didn't change dishes. I didn't clean the kitchen. I, I cleaned out, like I wiped out the shelves because I just couldn't not do that. But, um, I didn't, I didn't change. I just said, we're going to use our regular dishes. I don't have it in me. Um, we used ingredients that, you know, normally I quarantine all of the anything that was opened before Passover. Like we really followed the rules. And this year I just couldn't do any of it. And I, I still made a nice dinner, but everybody was on Zoom except our immediate family. Um, but then there was like an upside to the downside because we put together this whole trivia game as part of the Seder, like something to bring a tiny bit of joy into how heartbroken I felt that I just didn't have the energy to do Passover as I always do it. And, um, you know, we included pop culture, like name all the movies that take place in Egypt. You know, like we tried to think of ways to, and by the way, there are quite a few, like there are like 15, 16 movies that take place in Egypt. You would Um, know. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We tried to infuse a little, like knowing that Zoom, it was going to be very difficult to do like five rabbis read all night, you know, like we knew it was going to be difficult on Zoom to do a traditional Passover Seder. So we tried to infuse a little bit of fun into it just to like make ourselves feel better. But I do, I do feel like I still feel it in my body how um how i just couldn't gear up for passover 
and how painful that was because Passover is my like most uh, arduous and most beautiful holiday. It's my favorite holiday. So that was really, it was crush. It was crushing. I want to say, you know, yeah. Did you have one? Cause what, what was yours? Yeah. Uh, that's an interesting question. Ours. I mean, I, I think that I was in denial up until the moment of Seder that it was going to be all that different. You know, I'd, I'd experienced already in my young life enough kind of satyrs where it was just the two of us, or it was just three, or it was just five people. We'd kind of been around the world doing satyr. And so uh, it didn't feel so crazy or so different. What felt different was this idea that we were debating incorporating some kind of technology into the evening, which felt so different to our sort of orthoprax household. Uh, and then when we did it, it didn't feel so crazy at all. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we were just, um, we have this, we have this 18 year old um, uh, Israeli living in our house um, right now, uh, the Shinshinit doing the Shnatshirut through the Federation yeah. right now. And we were just telling our story about how we fell in love with the show. Are you watching Rami at all? No, uh, I haven't watched it yet. My husband loved it. Oh my gosh, Jody. We sort of know Rami. We sort of know him a little bit. He's a very nice guy. I have to watch. He is he's phenomenal. I love it. I would I refer to the show as like the Muslim Surgim, but I promise that this is like related because I feel like Pesach opened the door to us to something that we didn't really have opened to us before as as um again, orthoprax kind of from-ish conservative Jews. But this summer when we rented this cabin, this Airbnb cabin out in um, Big Bear, Daniel and I were there. It was Friday night and we um, we turned on Palm Springs in mm-hmm. uh, to watch the movie Palm Springs on Hulu. And it was Friday night and we got vegan Himalayan food. And we were and we were eating like Shabbat dinner watching and we set the TV on a timer so that we could watch Palm Springs, because it was just it was months deep into this pandemic. And there's only so much that you can do. And we set it on said it was going to turn off. But then it turned out to be a much shorter movie of Palm Springs. I don't know, B plus it was okay. It was enjoyable. But it was shorter than we thought. And Hulu decided for us that we would like to begin Rami, you know, season one, episode one. And we watched it and we were enthralled. So I feel like as a result of this, you know, pandemic, it's been weird. Like, it is interesting that the doors that open because you're willing to let the technology in huh. a little That's bit. You said, you said something before that, that, that intrigued me, which was like, you knew, you knew that you couldn't do, um, you knew that you couldn't do a regular Seder already. I feel like that's something I didn't learn until I'm, I'm still learning. Um, that, that That's a brilliant observation that it sounds like you already got from the very beginning. Tell me more about how, how you're figuring that out or how you figured that out um, that you, that you can't just do life the same way digitally. Like, are you, how are you incorporating that into your world? You know, it's, it's exactly what you said. It's how work life informs, your personal life. Yeah. So by Passover, we were about a month in to services online and Torah studies online. And, you know, and because I work very closely with the clergy as part of my role, um, I attended a lot of a, a lot of services at the beginning, a lot of um, the studies that they were doing at the beginning, because I really wanted my finger on the pulse of like, what's really working what's bringing people out, what's keeping my own attention, because I use myself as a gauge a lot, you know, and particularly like when I talk to clergy about, I'm just, I'm, you know, super Jewy Jew. And, um, and I talk to them about services in the before times, and where I've said, like, even my favorite movie, I don't want to watch every single week. And, and one of the confines of the liturgy is, you know, you're going to do the Michamocha, you're going to do the Shema, you're going to do the Elena, you're going to do the Amida, you're going to do, right? And so 
mixing it up in a way and you know and then people say well I'll just change the the tunes and then you go no 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 like the tunes is the thing that is the anchor that I want to be able to go you know when I was in Argentina and I could sing the Vea Hafta at synagogue because we are all one Jewish family I was in tears like this is these are my people it doesn't matter what language they speak so I already had this um, sensitivity to what people were being able to endure versus like what really felt engaging on Zoom. So, you know, work life informs personal life. And I knew, you know, we have we have a, a very diverse family. So we have my mother who went to Jewish day school my brother and I who went to Jew- Jewish day school, my husband who went to Jewish day school, his sister who refused to go to Jewish day school and didn't have a bat mitzvah, um, our kids who went to religious school, but, you know, I would say have them like there's, they know they're Jews, they have a Jewish identity, but I don't know how much they connect to like the practicing of Judaism part. Um, and then my sister-in-law, who is really like participates because it's a family thing. I don't I've never had a conversation with her about, um, you know, if the Judaism part has any meaning to her, mm-hmm. her husband, who is not Jewish and her two kids who I don't know if they identify as Jews or not. I've never had that conversation with them. And then my in-laws who don't know about um, who don't know the, you know, uh, they don't know Hebrew. They don't know uh, necessarily like which prayer comes next, but have very, very strong Jewish identities. So like you have this incredibly diverse population that comes to my Seder, for example. And, you know, like when we were growing up, our favorite part of the Seder was like, we get to sing the whole Birkatama zone. Like that, for some reason, was like my brother, and my mother and I and anyone who knew it, like it was like the thing. Okay, here comes the Birkatama zone and the banging of the tables and all of that stuff. That really has resonance. Somewhere the head of your day school is smiling. <laughs> oh, let me tell you something. Rabbi Emlin <laughs> knows that uh, that uh, he 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 had an impact. Um, and Sinai Akiba had a big impact on me. And by the way, I went to Herzl School that was at Beth Am. Uh, and, uh, and then we have people who don't even know what the Berkatama zone is, like have never heard of that prayer, never. So, you know, we can't do the whole Berkatama zone at our Seder. Um, and that's something we've had to give, up, give up to accommodate the diverse knowledge and commitment to Judaism at, at our table. Uh, so that, you know, that kind of stuff really informed for me what we could do on Zoom. Like, making people sit through reading, 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 even though we've found, you know, funny readings and, and we try to have tried to incorporate, we built our own Haggadah long before Haggadot.com came around um, at which seriously big plug for them because they're amazing. Um, So, you know, I just knew that a regular like go around and everybody read even on zoom was not going to work. And so we we had to kind of start from scratch and like a week before the Seder, while my heart couldn't be in the cleaning and the traditional, you know, my traditional practices, I focused more on like, how do we make this at least a little bit engaging for people who like maybe don't even care that there's a Seder, right, but are participating because they feel the familiar, familial connection and that being at the Seder with their family is the act of observing Passover, yeah. whether they're reading the Haggadah. Like, I think there are people in our family who would happily just come have dinner and go home, you know, maybe ha- find the Afikom and say the four questions, you know, like that might be it for them. And then you have us, the Burmans who are like, we can't skip this prayer, you know? So finding a happy medium on Zoom, then like, I feel like we leveled up after that, like, we unlocked some sort of achievement in, in just the trying. Yeah. That was such a long answer. I'm sorry. Oh, it, listen, Pesach was like, let's throw level 14 of this game at you, you know, in the first, in the first folds of the pandemic. And particularly so because for you, it was emotional, it was spiritual, it's your favorite thing, you gave up so much at first. Um, so after you got through that first Pesach, 
what about those Friday night dinners? What what have you been doing since then? Um, yeah. What's family so, been, been like for you? <laughs> that I, I want to say that has been one of the greatest pleasures is, first of all, I love cooking Shabbat dinner. Love it. But, you know, like everyone else in the pandemic and the bread craze, I've made a challah every single week. And, uh, you know, I have friends who are seriously inspirational in terms of their challah production. And we've tried everything. I've learned how to stuff challah strands. I've learned four, four strand, five strand, six strand. I've only gotten up to six strand. No, I did one eight strand, which was like very emotional. <laughs> Um, but I've made, I've made pretzel challahs. I've made apple cinnamon stuffed challahs. I've made truffle challah. I've made, you name it. Um, and I, and I'll tell you what's been so amazing. And again, it's like back to work, the work life integration, uh, every Friday at noon, our rabbis at Wilshire do a Torah study session. And every week I bring my my computer over to my baking area and I listen to Torah study. I make my challah dough. I let it rise. I do, you know, I'll do the braid, whatever. And um, so I make challah and study Torah now every Friday. And I absolutely love it. I love it, love it, love it. In fact, I now... I'm practically, my, my brother wants me to go into business and uh, open a store called Chala at your boy. And, um, and I've gotten really into it. So I made Chala for my parents every week. I made a few for my in-laws. Then my father-in-law got competitive and he made his own Chalas. So uh, that's been the biggest pleasure is making Shabbat dinner, making the Chala. Um, and every Friday night at 7 p.m., we go on Zoom with my in-laws and my parents and brother and sometimes Vlad's parent, uh, Vlad's sister comes too, um, and maybe her kids sometimes. And we all gather for five minutes. We light the candles together. We say Kiddush. Every week, everyone is like, okay, what challah did you make? Hold it up. You know, like we get a little challah beauty pageant and we say the prayers together. We stay on for five, 10 minutes. And then we all go and have our Shabbat dinners and that getting to see my parents every Friday night, in addition to Vlad's parents has been something that I said to him, like, we're, we're going to keep doing this. Even when we go back to his house, his parents for Friday night at seven o'clock, we're going to fire up the zoom and get my parents on and we'll do the prayers together because it's been, it's been amazing. How have your kids been through this? What, what's, uh, what's this been for them? So in a way, my kids were built for pandemic. <laughs> Our oldest son, he was a, he was um, at, at college when this all yeah. uh, unfolded and he stayed in his apartment in Long Beach for uh, the rest of that semester and then came home for the summer, which um, was, it was hard on, was harder on him. Honestly, the, uh, He's he's very much an introvert and and not a guy who needs so much um, time with friends. For him, all most of his time with friends is done on computers in computer games anyway. So he was built for this, but it's hard to go back and live with your parents after you've been living on your own in an apartment for five years. Um, but he now he just moved with his girlfriend. She's in grad school in uh, Oregon. And so he said, like, it was cute, the cutest thing ever. He asked permission. Like, you got to love a 22-year-old who still asks permission from his parents. Um, <laughs> and he said, like, I think it'll be better for me to go with her. And I'm going to be doing online school anyway. And we said, we agree. So he, off he went. My middle guy started college from his bedroom. And um, he is the most even-keeled person you've ever met. So... He was like, okay, yeah, that's fine. You know, just, just fine. And then um, actually just recently suffered another disappointment because the, he finally got a space in the UC Santa Cruz residence halls and um, just on the night of his farewell dinner, got an email from UC Santa Cruz saying, no, we're not opening the residence halls yet for you. And, and it's going to be at least a month and maybe more. Oh. And his whole reaction was, 
Oh, that's disappointing. So he's he, he's oh, me your way, son. <laughs> not only is he like the most level headed, but he's also the best parent in the household. Like he's okay. he's just amazing. And my little guy, he doesn't like to leave his room to go outside anyway. Um, and we sort of joke that he was built for pandemic life because we don't ask him to go anywhere uh, except to visit his grandparents once a week or once every other week. But even he has confessed that it is hard to be focused on school from your computer. And um, he's done really well. Like, actually, he loves to bake. He loves to cook. He loves he loves those things. And so do I. And so he and I have become these like very adventurous bakers and we try all sorts of things and we we've bought tools we've bought molds we've bought like you name it his next thing is he wants to get a meat grinder so you know we can get meat at the kosher market and make our own hamburger so he's explored this other i you know his other passion that i think could end up being something for him in the future so he's that he's done fine. Like they're all fine. Um, and the truth is we're all fine, you know, and we've, I know there are a lot of people who are struggling with depression and who are struggling with, um, that how to move forward and feeling stuck. And thankfully we've, we've thrived around here. Like we all adapted pretty quickly. Um, and as my mother says, like we live in a palace with food in the fridge and, you know, and, and uh income and and we're very far removed from the uncertainty that a lot of our friends mm. have felt and and we really make an effort with our kids to talk about that to acknowledge that because we want them to know like yes everyone's experience is valid and if you're finding this hard that's okay but also your life is privileged compared to what other people are experiencing. And I've been impressed with how well they have uh, taken in that notion. And we really don't get any complaining about uh, masks, about you can't see your friends, you can't do this, you can't do that. We get no complaining about Mm -hmm. that. And I think they've, they've taken in their privilege in a way that I'm proud of. You've talked a little bit about these gatherings that you get to have virtually with your family. And I have a beautiful picture now in my head of you braiding challah on Friday midday and kind of your bonding now with your kid and maybe a meat grinder in your future. So there are all these wonderful ways that you've even in a in synchronous way connected with family and with other people. I'm wondering what community is to you these days? Do you find that you're connecting with other people in your community, not as a community builder and a professional, but are there people beyond your family who you consider community? And do you think it's possible to be connecting with community during pandemic? Or is that something that's on hold? Mm, Yeah, I mean, we've made some effort to have some zoom experiences with friends, really intentionally, actually, even this afternoon, I'm just having a Zoom check-in with a friend who I haven't seen in a really long time. Um, and I've done those with a, with quite a few people. And, and my husband and I together have done those with quite a few groupings. Um, we did choose one family over the summer who I we really are very close with. And we bubbled with them and they came and swam in our pool and we hung out and celebrated birthdays and those kinds of things. Um, but you know, we, uh, it's sort of a hybrid, right? Like there are a lot of things that we're not doing and we're not communing and we're not, uh, we're, we're just not doing because of the pandemic. And also we have like, we just took down our sukkah and we did that because it's huge and very long and we could have two people over who would sit at one end of the sukkah outside and we'd sit at the other end of the sukkah outside. And we found it to be a perfect space for, for having and connecting with people 
in a personal way that also felt safe because it, our sukkah is probably 12 feet across. So it's, you could easily social distance. Um, and we've really gotten to know our neighbors, our immediate mm. next door neighbors. Um, they are, they're lovely, wonderful people. They have two really terrific kids, like the two smartest kids I've ever met in my life. Um, and they are, I think we've gotten to know them much more than we might have. I think it would have taken long because they are new to the neighborhood because there are, you know, there are social outlet right next door. Hmm. Um, and I will say my husband's grandfather, grandmother died uh, a couple of weeks back. Oh, and the Wilshire Boulevard Temple community just embraced us with love and tributes and letters and emails and um every single clergy person said oh do you need a clergy person like the, it was they so came to us um in a way that we needed them that i felt the community really so strongly even in a time when we weren't together right so i i do I don't feel disconnected, but I, it does take so much effort. It takes a lot of intentionality. Mm. And, um, and I think that, you know, I hear, we, we hear about all of the national concerns, right? That quarantining and how that ties with depression and abuse and all the things that we have to be vigilant about and that we have to be concerned about. And I think it's only connecting with community and with friends in any way that you can, um, that is, that is the antidote to those things. I mean, obviously it's not the antidote to an abusive relationship. I don't want to, I don't want to dismiss that in that way, but I do, I do think that some of this, um, pandemic depression is cured by doing whatever you can. If it's zoom, if it's social distancing, if it's there, I, I feel that community is, more important than ever. And, you know, we have a huge congregation. We called them three times already, like during this, the entire congregation we've been calling because that's what we got to do right now. That's the way that people feel community is somebody's got to check on somebody else. So you're checking in on your community members and you're pretty tuned into what your own community is doing and tuning into your rabbis doing Torah on, you know, midday on Friday, like you kind of know their schedule and they're checking in with you when you have losses and things going on there. Um, do you ever check out like what's going on at other Jewish institutions? Like have, have your tastes expanded through the virtual global network of offerings? I, I'm picturing the 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 version of oh my parents can come to Shabbat dinner now but that for your your Jewish um, general experiences oh my gosh that has been the best part of this pandemic the upside of the downside and again like anytime I refer to something positive it is in no way to dismiss that. 400,000 people are dead. Millions of people are like, I don't want to, I don't want to give the impression that any of the joy that we find is at the expense of that, you know, back to Passover, right? We take the drops out of our Kiddush cup because our, our joy is always diminished when people are sick, when people are dying. But having said that, so I produced our uh, high holiday services this year. I had the incredible experience of working with a, you know, professional TV crew and learning about directing and learning about camera placement and post-production and pre-production. Like it was a blast. <laughs> but by the time that we got to services airing on Zoom on the holidays, I had watched the Arab Rosh Hashanah Wilshire Boulevard Temple service 17 times or more. And every single service, the same could be said. I could have, I could give you Rabbi Leader's sermon by heart right now. So, uh, Kol Nidre, I listened to Rabbi Wolpe's sermon. I got to tune in. I, I really got to like 
I, I watched um, Stephen Wise a little bit. I watched our friend at Emmanuel, um, Sarah Basson, who, you know, has what beautiful things to teach. I really got to like shul hop a little bit and the high holidays in a way that, you know, when you work at a synagogue, there's, there's no opportunity to do. And my own synagogue where I belong is Valley Beth Shalom. So we, you know, we linked in there to see what was happening there. And then because the services were, you know, online, it wasn't restricted to just the period of the time when the services were airing, you could go back and watch Mm -hmm. highlights. And that was so amazing. And I think that's one of the most fun things. And then we really feel like a lot of people are doing this kind of stuff well. And so I'll tune in to Sinai on a weekend or Central Synagogue on a weekend or, you know, I've I've gotten to sort of be all over the world in service in attending services in a, and, you know, on Saturday mornings around here, we watch Rabbi Feinstein's Torah study from nine to ten. And then we go to Wilshire and watch services from 10 to 11. And, you know, we're like. You could never do that in Los Angeles. There's no, there's no physical way. With your cup of coffee in hand and presumably in a very comfortable pair of slippers. I mean, pajamas, lady. We're still, we watch all of this while we're in our pajamas. You know, we stand up for the Elena. We stand up for the Amita. We sit back down. But I have questions about that. Wait, talk to me about that. Because as one of the people who sometimes has people with their video off or sometimes is streaming directly and doesn't always have everybody's video to watch on the other side or isn't always the one responsible for the services that are video streamed, right? Sometimes yeah. I'm with the in-person distance to outdoor services. I would like to know what compels you when you're watching a service to either stand up or not, especially if your video's off or you're watching like a YouTube or Vimeo feed or yeah. a Facebook live or whatever. When do you stand and when do you not? Let's drill down on that. (laughs) Well, especially because the clergy uh, who are live streaming from their homes, they can't stand up and sit down because, you know, all of a sudden you'd see their sweatpants, you know, (laughs) it changes the, the, what, what camera, what the camera's on. Exactly. No, I think it's, um, I think it's, we tried, we really tried both ways, Vlad and I both. And I think ultimately he just could not sit down during an Amida, right? Like he could not sit down during an Alenu. And then I like couldn't sit down when he was standing. Like congregation is standing, you stand, right? Right. If you have the physical ability to stand. Right, yeah. And and I couldn't just sit while he's standing up for the Alenu. And we just, I think it's the... um, it's the natural human desire for normalcy yeah. and feel like it doesn't matter where we are. It doesn't matter if you can see us, if we're participating, like my father, he says in, in for a penny, in for a pound. If I'm going to already show up to Shabbat services, if I'm already going to sit down and pray and sing along and, you know, all those things, am I really going to sit down for the Alenu? Yeah. Like I just, I think, I think it's, um, you know, it's again, it's back to Sinai Akiba. It's, Rabbi Shunlin would be so proud. And even Rabbi Dorf, the original principal when I was there. I think they just built into my DNA that there are prayers that you stand up for. There are prayers that you sat down. You know, we do, we still do the bowing and we still do the, you know, um, kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. We still do the tippy toes. Um yeah, it's just built into my DNA now. I can't not do it. I appreciate I appreciate that there's a physical draw through the screen to you. Um it it, it speaks to the engagement that people are capable of reaching yeah. in you um through a simple service, you know, drawing you to get up even if you're in your pajamas. <laughs> That you feel compelled to get up on your tippy toes because um, because you're present to these prayers 
and the prayers are still the prayers, even if they're coming at you through Facebook Live or through a stream that you've tapped into, but you've chosen to be there and that's what matters. So you're present for it. That's right. And you know, listen, I, I, I'm like this in, in many arenas. So, you know, if there's a commercial and someone is crying in the commercial, I'm crying too. I know they feel my, my, uh, support and that, you know, in my, in my world, nobody cries alone. Right. And the same thing is true for, uh, for services, which is, you know, when I hear a cantor singing and we have some pretty great ones and so do many, many synagogues in this city have some really magnificent cantors. I know that they're, they're not singing, they're praying. And, uh, and I know that they're, they're leading prayer. They're not just singing prayer. So I feel compelled to sing along. I feel compelled to join in the prayer experience with the cantor through the screen because I know, I know that he or she, um, I know that that person is not singing the prayer, they're leading the prayer. And that, and so I'm following the prayer, you know, that's, that is my role in the service. And I think that's what some of our most magnificent cantors are doing. They know they're not just singing, they're leading. And and they're leading so that you sing along and so that you pray along. And I think that that's part of the connection and the connectivity of participating in the service for me means, you know, the cantor leads and I follow. And that means something to me. And I, I can't just sit and listen to somebody reciting prayer. I pray along. So, and I, again, like, I think that was built into my DNA with Jewish day school. It's deeply meaningful to me in two ways, certainly as a cantor myself, but also somebody who grew up with a cantor who always did feel an invitation from her, from the Bima. It does feel like an invitation to pray. And that is what makes um, cantorial singing so compelling is that it's an invitation uh, to sing along and what you what you've brought up over and over again in this conversation is that zoom and perhaps it's the thing that makes us so fatigued by the mm-hmm. end of the day is that zoom has this exhausting extra thick set of hoops we have to jump through in order to convey all these things that we also have to convey in real life, but we have to then just work so much harder to do when we're doing it on Zoom. It's not as though those things go away that you mentioned in real life at Seder. In real life at Seder, you still have all sorts of different Jewishnesses and not represented at your Seder. That's still an issue you have to contend with. On Zoom, it's just times 20 and so much more complicated by the platform by the medium and so yeah it just reminds me of what the source of exhaustion is and why when i start early in the morning on zoom by the time i hit the end of the day it's like well come on you know it it is it is pretty tiring yeah uh, you know i mean there is some research about this my brother my my husband the science nerd um he he explained to me that the brain actually is working harder on zoom because it's harder to read expression. You know, the natural flow of conversation, part of what we're doing with our brains is evaluating faces, right? Like I can see that what I'm saying is giving that person consternation or, Hey, this person really likes what I'm saying. I can really tell. And zoom doesn't give us all of the nuances of facial expressions mm-hmm. and the brain is doubling down on trying to do what it does as a, you know, for a living and trying to read reaction. And because you don't have the same level of detail through the screen, it has to work twice as hard. And I think that's why we're all so much tired tireder. you know, I'm an extrovert. I love a full day of meetings, right? Like me just at my computer working, but a whole day of meetings, any day, my best day, retreat, 
Oh, you're the best. The best. I eat it up. Yes. But but, um, on Zoom, it's a different story. It's a different problem. Right. It totally is. And um, Priya Parker, who I'm so excited, the rabbinical assembly seems to be bringing her in for their retreat coming up. I, some one of my congregants um, sent something to me a short essay of hers an excerpt maybe from it that I um, that informed me in a way that actually influences this podcast and what we're doing right now and kind of influences me in meetings in a way that's very counterintuitive to me on zoom, which is that in addition to the facial feedback that we're getting, one of the things that's so exhausting on zoom is that when people go on mute, which I am compelled to do because I often have a five and two year old or at least one of them, you know, toddling around the house. Uh, when they go on mute, we also lose the audio subtle feedback from people who go mm, and ah, mm, and aha, uh-huh. and we lose all of those simple pieces of feedback as well. And they're so critical that little those small pieces of verbal feedback, especially in meetings and all that. And also as an extrovert here, I, I so rely on that. Um, yeah, good observation. Right. And, you know, and then my biggest nemesis, my the biggest bane of my existence is when people stop their video altogether. And I'm looking at a picture of them. You know, I I've watched the clergy when they're teaching and they are imploring people, please, I don't care if you're wow. eating. I don't care. Please turn on your video. I can't teach to a screen full of pictures. Mm-hmm. And it, I, I really relate to that. And, you know, like I've said to people, I don't care if you're eating lunch, turn on your video. I don't, I don't like looking at nothing and you're, I'm not going to turn off my video. Yeah. It's really uncomfortable. You're, you're, you're exactly right. Yeah. A, a dear friend of mine said to me the other day, something that made me question if I am overstepping bounds of intimacy more often than I think that I am, but I called them on FaceTime and they said, you know, gosh, I really love that you push me by calling me always on FaceTime instead of just on the phone. Most of my friends just call me on the phone. And you always call me on FaceTime, which really pushes me to be present for our conversations because then we're looking at each other as well. And I always think to call somebody on FaceTime, it's way more fun to see their face. And I'm exhausted only looking at the same four walls all day and at, at people. But I do wonder if people are thinking when I call them on FaceTime, like, doesn't really need to look at me again. Like I, I have other things. I would rather be, you know, doing my dishes and listening to her on the phone. Um, but I do wonder if that's like a, uh, something that's sourced by my extroversion that I would prefer mm-hmm. to be looking at somebody's face and, and, and getting that feedback. Yep. Uh, you know, I used to be, uh, I used to, when we first started with zoom and all of these things before the pandemic, I always was like, I don't want someone looking at me. I feel self-conscious. Like, what's the point? Whatever. Now, I anytime someone says, can I can I grab a call with you? I say, oh, I'll send you a Zoom link. Like, now I don't like talking to people on the phone at all. I like looking at faces and and what a gift this technology is to us. Because I don't, I don't want to be on the phone. I want to see you. I want to see your reactions. I want to, I want you to see mine. I want us to feel like we're together, even if we're not. That's such a great observation. Wow. Yeah. I I think that it also, um, it also is a, a ceiling of the promise of attention. You know, I, I know for certain that your eyes are on me and my eyes are on you and we're here together because we're looking at each other. And even though I know that's probably happening when we're on the phone too, uh, sometimes when we're on the phone, we're driving and that's okay, right? I also have very good friends who I call when I'm folding laundry and and taking care of other business. And those can be really loving relationships that some of the most important conversations happen while I'm multitasking. Um, and when we can be present looking at each other, that can be its own form of intimacy uh, and community building. So I get it. Um, wanting to ask people to turn those, those videos on. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. And yeah. now we think now it's just become my, my preferred form of communication. And I think zoom will be a very active use when we're out of this pandemic, when we can have meetings, because, you know, speaking of Los Angeles, I can't believe how much time I wasted in the car. You know, speaking of high holiday sermons, 
one of uh, Rabbi Leader's uh, lessons from the pandemic was, you know, for this al-chait, for the sin of the 405 and the 101. Like, yeah. why am I wasting people's time driving around yeah. when some things can be done just right on Zoom? That's right. So I think that's really got to be in our minds as we come out of this, what what things are worthy of of traffic and what things are not. Right. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a person admittedly, like I think uh, many people would rail against. I have always preferred people to work in the office. I, I've let people work from home, but I never have liked it. I've, I really feel like there's something to being physically present together. Yeah. And I'm rethinking my view on this, like, you know, in a city like Los Angeles mm-hmm. with so much traffic and, and carbon footprint and all of that stuff, yeah. I'm much more softened to the idea of people working in a hybrid way than I ever was, ever was as a supervisor. And, you know, I trust my staff. It's not because I didn't believe they could be productive at home. If, if I didn't believe that they would be productive, then they wouldn't work for me. Right. Because I hire people who I trust. Right. But um, but I I'm really rethinking how much do we force people to do something that really isn't as necessary with with technology like this anymore. So who knows what that will (laughs) maybe I'll just be so craving for everyone to be together that I'll say again, like everybody back in. But I think I think we're going to land in a hybrid model. I really do. What else do you think is going to be changed once we come back profoundly. You've mentioned a couple of things. This is one of them, the hybrid of changing the way that we work. You've mentioned, you know, zooming your parents into Friday night meals. Um, What else do you imagine changing profoundly, even once you're able to fill those seats again, which I know is actually your job (laughs) is helping to fill those seats on high holy days. Well, I think that there's going to be a huge connection need after this, I think synagogues are about to experience a revival when we can gather again in community. The idea of being seen and being heard, you know, we're always lamenting the the fall of the American synagogue. I think synagogues are just getting ready to have a huge moment. I think people are really in need of connection they want to be around people when everyone's vaccinated, please God. And, and uh, we've come out of this in a big way. And by the way, um, I'll tell you something. We are absolutely going to come out of this. Absolutely. Because the 1918 pandemic, we came out of that with technology and medical advances from a hun- more than 100 years ago, right? In 2021, we can come out of a pandemic if you can come out of a pandemic in 1918. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for people who are like, we'll never be rid of this. That's not true. You know, we still have the Spanish flu. 50 million people don't die of it anymore. So that's my little optimistic note. Um, but I, I really, I think synagogues are, and communal gathering organizations and communal gatherers are just on the precipice of a big moment. I, I really believe this. I think the other thing is, I just had a conversation with our adult programs director who I supervised yesterday. And um, and we were saying like, look, she got 75 people to a program that she had done before um, where she, in person she got 15 or 20 people. And we are already thinking like, what is our, what does our digital synagogue look like? And what does our in live bricks and mortar in-person synagogue look like? That's, I think there's no question that um, we're all thinking about, you know, what's our TV studio going to look like? What are our TV offerings versus our in-person offerings? I also, I think the return of neighborhoods, of people being connected to each other as next door neighbors, I think is, is I think our future looks very bright in that way. Mm. Um, And, and, you know, listen, you and I both today listened to the inauguration and it was all about 
you know, we don't have to agree, but we have to be civil and we have to connect and we have to, uh, we at least have to agree that we're in this together. And, and I just, I see such potential in the Jewish community, especially because we're built for this, right? We're built for connection. You can't have a minion without 10 people. Although I, I always laugh at when I was growing up at Sinai Temple, Mr. Mermel, who was our shamash there, and he he was old school, so he didn't count women in the minion, even though Sinai as a practice counts women. And so I used to say to Mr. Mermel, I want you to count me. And he'd go, I do count you. You are number 11. And, and so I think Jewish communities are built for exactly this. And I think I think young people are going to, I mean, this is what we have to look forward to is young people want the connection. What, how do we do it in their spaces? I think we, we've been thinking about stuff like this for a long time. And that whole relational Judaism and the idea of um, everything is retail, not wholesale. I think we've learned that in a big way during this pandemic. And I'm trying to think now about like, how do I make everything feel retail? Like it's personally directed to meet every individual's needs. I think that if we're all smart, we're all planning now for that moment. Uh, we're thinking about like, you know, zip code strategies and how do we introduce congregants to their neighbors who are congregants, right? That's, it's incredibly laborious, but I think that's where synagogues are going to really thrive is in identifying how we connect people to each other more yeah. than programming, more than per intellectual pursuits, more than everything else. It's going to be about, about fostering those connections. And it always has been, but I think we are organized now and we've certainly been given plenty of planning time. Thanks for this pandemic. So I'm hoping that all of my colleagues, because, you know, it's good for the Jews when synagogues and other Jewish institutions uh, are, are successful, right? So I'm hoping we're all being intentional in our planning time now so that we can just hit the road running when it's coming. I know that's not a real prediction, but I, I, that's what I'm, what I'm predicting is that the, the the good planners, the smart planners are going to succeed beyond what they have ever, beyond what we've been succeeding in the last 10 years, 20 years, because the pandemic reminded us we need each other. Yeah, well, you're not just predicting, you are planning. That's that's the thing is that that's part of what your work is. And it's part of where your brain and heart go, which is to plan for that future. Um, it reminds me of two things that I that I heard recently um, when I was with on retreat, you would have loved retreat, but it was for cantors and sacred music makers um, with uh, the Cantors Assembly and the uh, American Conference of Cantors and the Guild of Temple Musicians. Every year we go to Palm Springs, but I am one of the co-chairs of uh, what was a virtual retreat this year. Rabbi Steve Kay from Or Hadash came and spoke to us and he offered us um, one of his signature models that he talks about is walking us through the difference between uh, going into most grocery stores into the freezer aisle uh, and what it's like to sort of reach into their freezer section and how you open up the door and the cold kind of hits you and so you grab whatever you need and shut the door versus Trader Joe's freezer section and how have, if you've ever been to their frozen aisle and how long you can linger on the aisle and how you wind up buying sweets and cookies and sort of lingering in their colorful warmer aisle and how the difference um, between how you design a section can really change the warmth and the lingering spirit of the space that you're in. Um, what you say reminds me a lot about sort of how we're going to redesign the spaces that we're in and how we linger in there. And also something that my synagogue president has been talking about a lot in combination with the guy, Bert Kleiman, who's going to listen to this and edit it. So he might just edit my reference to him out here. Um, but uh, what he talks about with podcasting as well, which is um, what I hope um, maybe in conversation with the rabbi K, I can transform his metaphor about grocery stores into something about um, about consuming movies, which I know you love very much. Um, 
which is I think the synagogues that are going to win are the ones who can transform from Blockbuster to Netflix or even better analogy, probably old school Netflix to new school Netflix. You know, remember Netflix DVDs like that's that's the story. It's Netflix mailing you DVDs to Netflix showing up on your TV screen. And it's being that bold and being willing to go from a model where you say, hey, you know what, these are getting scratched up, people are consuming them way too fast. Um, People want asynchronous, they want to be able to choose to watch something at any time, and being able to transform their model and produce original programming and do everything in in the way that they completely transformed into this incredible institution and and company at the top of the world that is now uh, Oscar contending and winning, I think you would know better than I, right? Absolutely. And, you know, the, it is interesting to think about the net, Netflix model, too, because I think about in Ron Wolfson's book, you know, in, in Relational Judaism, he talks about one of our responsibilities as a Jewish institution is uh, people's relationship with Jewish living and learning. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, that's really about experimentation. And so I'm thinking a lot about, like, what can we send home? Like, what Shabbat box of questions and what, you know, what rituals and what, what can we make feel like we're sending Judaism home for you to try and you to decorate in your way and you're fine meaning it, it meaning in it in the way that you will. And so we'll have this streaming version and we'll have a mailing version and we'll have a, you know, even just the relationship pieces with clergy because I want to, I'm always thinking about like, I would sit and talk to any one of our clergy members for the rest of the day and have the most interesting conversation. And I want our cards to feel like they know that they can do that too. And that it won't be about like, um, you know, how kosher are you keeping? And it won't be about, you know, did you drive on Shabbat? It'll be, it will, it won't be in like a judgy space. It would be in the space of like, oh, have you thought about trying this? This is the correct, like, give it a try. See how you like it. Oh, you didn't like it? Oh my gosh, I have 700 other things. And I want, I want the synagogue life experience to feel like a community that's experimenting in an active, real way with Judaism. Yeah. And, and that, you know, you can decorate it in purple and I'll direct it, decorate it in blue, decorate it. That's my mother's expression. I'll decorate it in blue and it will still, but we will still be experiencing Judaism. And I, I, that's, I think a next phase for us too, is like, how do we manifest practicing at home in a way that feels experimental, not in a way that feels like, like I did it wrong. I said the prayer wrong. I said the Hebrew wrong. I just recently, our very close friends, they were doing Shabbat. We were doing Shabbat together, and um, and with all the appropriate precautions and testing. And I, I don't want anyone to think we. And um, and my friend, she's the mom, and she was about to do the blessing over her daughter, and she looked and she was like, oh, you know, don't judge my my crappy Hebrew reading, you know, or she was like reading a transliteration or something. And I, at first I was like, I would never judge you for that in any way. But then she said it exactly right, like exactly right pronunciation. And I thought, what is it about Judaism that is sending people the message that like you didn't do it quite good enough. It's not exactly, you know, you said the reish wrong and you say you didn't do the, and you know, like I want people to feel like however I get it out, that's the prayer and that's the right way. And, and that's, I think, you know, and, and that's all allowed in Judaism, at least in the Judaism that I live and practice is And even, you know, I've heard Chabad rabbis say, like, say the blessing wrong, but say the blessing, right? Like, try it. I, that's the Judaism that I want us to live, which is like, try it. And you don't like it, try something else. Okay. Like we, we can live in that space together. Right. And also to try to create a community where when we say, you know, that, that uh, famous saying, da, da, mi, da, mi, 
I always yeah. reverse the me and the ata, Lifne Omed, know before whom you stand, um, yeah. which actually I don't think appears in any. Someone challenged me after you listen to the podcast. Everyone thinks it appears in the Talmud. I don't think it appears anywhere. I think it, it appears in Jewish architecture, but like, I, I think that's like a, I think that's random American historical. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, um, but what I once heard from a, a, um, a fantastic um, teacher and rabbi is one way to read that is if you're worried about who you're standing before and that person is anyone besides God, like you're worried about what your friend is thinking about what you're saying or the rabbis you know, worried about exactly how correctly you're saying it, then you're in the wrong community mm-hmm. or, or like maybe you like check in about your mental health, right? Like, cause maybe that's the anxiety talking and not really yeah. like, cause that moment is not about the blessing and whether it's correct Hebrew or not, that moment was about blessing her daughter, right? That's the yuck of that moment. The yuck yeah. of that moment was that she was worried about you judging her Hebrew pronunciation rather than about being present to her daughter and blessing her daughter in the moment. And that's, that's what we want to craft in the Judaism and the beautiful Judaism we want to make in this world is to let people be free to be present in their blessing moments and not worry about the judgment of the other people around them, particularly in our friendships. What's so beautiful about what you just said about, um, about uh, know before whom you stand, because I'll tell you, I've never thought about this before because I always thought about it as like, you know, you're standing before God, like have the right clothes on, have the right kavanah, have the right intention, right? But it's also the gen- the gentleness of God, like know that God loves you and that yeah. there's a gentleness and it's not a judgment and it's not, it's also like know who you're in front of. You're in front of the one who like loves you and is like, is your, is your spiritual bestie and That's is going to so look at you through loving eyes, not through, you know, not through harsh eyes. And I never thought about that before till you just said it right now. Yeah. Your fairy godmother's here. Right. Like there's this know that you're before someone who loves you. I never thought about it that way before till right now. Yeah. And now we're not quite back in those spaces. So we got to make those little sacred spaces that we're in front of, even when you're in your jammies and bowing at Elenu next to Vlad. <laughs> when you're like with the other rabbi for your third service of Shabbat morning, because <laughs> you're tuning into as you're replaying services in New York. But, you know. Know before whom you stand in your jammies. That's beautiful. I love that. Oh, Hillary, you made my day. I love that. Oh, you made my day by saying yes to having this conversation. I'm so grateful for this time together. And, you know, just because we are coming to an end recording this conversation doesn't mean we can't talk again. So thanks for saying yes to this. And I look forward to hearing more about your your braiding success next time. I want to hear about your 16 braid. I know. Well, I'm, I'm... I I am I'm eyeballing the nine braid uh, instructions, and I think that's going to be my pinnacle. Like the the nine is is plenty. <laughs> I if if anything great comes out of this pandemic, then I think <laughs> I think I think there just isn't enough en- enough people baking bread out there. I think that's what we've learned. Is that just uh, not clearly. enough people? Clearly, uh, clearly. I mean that, and I finally mastered macaron. Not macarons, oh. but macarons, which are very difficult to make. And I finally, finally got them after many tries. So yes. I, it was such a That's pleasure fantastic. to talk to you. It was it, so it, great to talk. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm I'm honored to make the list of some very, just people that you've been talking to who I admire and who I have so much to learn from. Thanks for listening to this episode of Are You Coming Back? Do you have someone you'd like to recommend for a conversation like this one? Someone who might have a fascinating personal perspective on returning to Jewish rhythms beyond the pandemic? Reach out to us at hchorney at tbala.org.